Welcome to episode number 34 of Off the Shelf. Oh, sovereign God, oh, matchless King, the saints adore, the angels sing, and fall before the throne of grace. To you belongs the highest praise. Hi. My name is Rod Bergen, and I want to welcome you to this week's episode of the Off the Shelf podcast. Off the Shelf is now being heard in over a hundred countries, and we're glad you could join us. The aim of Off the Shelf is to help people know what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. The podcast is primarily directed at followers of the message of William Branham and former followers like ourselves. This week, we are concluding our interview with Abdu Murray, a former Muslim who is now a follower of Jesus Christ. You addressed this earlier, but, but I want to touch on it again, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity is, is I'm, I'm trying to understand God and putting it in, it put him into some kind of language that we can actually understand is difficult. And I think it was Augustine who said, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your salvation, but if you try to understand it, you'll lose your mind. <laughs> and, and as a result... People use a number of analogies to describe the doctrine of the Trinity, and most of them are bad. So there's the three-leaf clover, which is tritheism, which Trinitarians do not believe in three gods. Then there is, you know, people say, well, God is like water. Uh, water can be an ice. It can, you know, a solid. It can be a liquid. It can be a gas. But that's just modalism. Um, sometimes people say, well, it's kind of like humans. We're body, soul, and spirit, even though I don't think that, that scripture actually teaches we're a triune being, but that, that's another subject. Some people say it's, an, it's like an actor in a Greek play who plays multiple roles but simply changes his mask. But again, that's modalism. Are there any good analogies for the Trinity? Boy, I wish I could say yes, because um, it would make life a lot easier. I think analogies are a place to start often. I do think the water one comes closest only because there is a... Um, a, a state, um, if you uh, uh, understand physics and some chemistry, there's a thing called the triple point. It's a place of certain pressure and certain temperature where a single body of water can exist at the same temperature as gas, liquid, or solid. Oh, really? But the problem is it doesn't exist in all three at the same time. It can exist in any one of those states at the same at the same pressure and temperature but it doesn't actually exist that way so even then with all these sort of things we go around and try to figure out we totally can't get it we can't yeah, totally yeah, get the analogy yeah, yeah. it all breaks down um light is another one people have used that say light is a wave and a particle it behaves in both ways at the same time and i would say that that might approximate something along the lines of the way god can be one thing one way and another thing in another way um, but even that sort of breaks down because we're not fully sure we understand how light is both a wave and a particle um, at the same time. Yeah, so we we're don't still understand it. This. Yeah, right. So, uh, so and we might we might find out that it's it's a wave and that's <laughs> all it is, or it's a particle and that's all it is. And now the analogy is ruined and it sort of ruins our vision of God. Yeah, yeah. The fundamental breakdown, Rod, of course, is that you're using things in creation to fully understand that which created those things. They're using material things to understand how an immaterial being, who is the ground of all being, could possibly exist. Yeah. So analogies only help 
to a very limited degree. So if I were to use analogies in, an, in a discussion with somebody, what the Trinity is like, if they really know their stuff, they'll be able to turn me inside out with that analogy. As you pointed out, if I use the water analogy, any modalist would say, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, you would, that's it, argument's over. Um, uh, so I, I, I think that even fundamentally speaking, if you were to say, can I ever use anything in creation to give us a full picture of God, the answer would have to be no, no because no. those things depend on him, and he is the independent being, so you can never do it. Now, does the Bible actually use analogies? Of course. It talks about God, uh, Jesus being the shepherd, and the sheep hear his voice. It talks about uh, a mother hen. Uh, it talks about God being um, having a hand and eyes and all these things. These are analogous, but they're not meant to describe God fully. Yeah. The problem with the analogies we use for the Trinity is that they're meant to describe God fully. They can never do that. They, they can never do it. No, um, that's exactly so right. I I, I, my, my favorite one, I think, is C.S. Lewis's kind of discussion of of a square looking at a cube. So a two-dimensional, mm -hmm. a, a figure in two dimensions looking at a third-dimensional figure and saying, well, a square, a cube is just six squares. Right. And the square goes... Yeah, I understand a cube. A cube is just six squares, and and yet what it doesn't it doesn't understand the third dimension. And so, so Lewis would say that imagining a being that exists in another dimension in another world that's beyond ours, having three persons in one being, we look at it and we kind of say, well, it's three, but it's not. Kind of, you know, it's like a a square looking at a cube and saying it's just six squares. And it, right. it's because we can't really comprehend that third dimension. Looking at God and trying to comprehend him in our standpoint is something we just can't do. And I, the reason why I love C.S. Lewis's analogy, because it's an analogy for disanalogies. Yeah. Um, yeah. What he's saying is, is that uh, by using the analogy of a square and a cube, he is saying analogies don't work. Yeah. Because yeah. The, the square is trying to relate the cube to the things it's familiar with. Yes, yes. Um, and then saying that fully comprehends it. He's saying it doesn't fully comprehend it because a square would have no idea about what depth actually is. It all, yeah. all it knows is length and width. Um, so, so it's that's why it's so brilliantly done, as C.S. Lewis often does. Yeah. He uses an analogy to prove that analogies don't work. Don't work. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah exactly right. Uh, and, and, and by the way, and that's not just Trinitarian, you know, that's everything. Um, we can understand the concept of eternality, for example. Yeah. Uh, if, if I was a Muslim, I understood what, what it meant for God to never have existed. But when you start to think and wrap your mind around the idea that God never had a beginning, what does that mean? How do you understand yeah. God to have a non-beginning? Well, cosmology tells us that you know the universe began to exist at an infinite, at a finite point in the past. Yeah. Um, time began at a certain point, so we can sort of apprehend it mathematically. But no one fully gets what it means to have never started. Um, uh, to have always been there. Yeah. We don't yeah. get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or how to, it means to know everything. We accept these things because. They are logically possible, though not experientially knowable. Yeah. I can't know what it's like to be eternal. I just can't. Yeah. And the reason is because I'm, I'm temporal. It's like asking a, a fish, what is wet yeah. compared to dry? Yeah. Yeah. How does the fish know you know what you're talking about? Yeah. One, it's, it's a fish. But two, it exists in a perpetual state of wetness. Yeah. So for it, wet isn't wet. Wet is just stuff. That's how I exist. So we're locked in time. We're also locked in three dimensions, 
and God who would be a you could call him an extra dimensional being, you yeah. could call him super dimensional being, or a trans dimensional being, um, simply exists in a way that we just simply can't understand. Uh, yeah, outside our understanding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One thing I did want to touch on, and this is from a modalist perspective, they will point to baptism, a water baptism. Uh, and specifically in the name of Jesus Christ, if you look in Acts 2.38, 8.16, Acts 10.48, uh, Acts 19.5, um, yep. people were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ or in the Lord Jesus rather than the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which is the wording in Matthew 28.19. Is there any theological significance to a person being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ rather than in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, provided that the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ is not being used as some kind of statement that the doctrine of the Trinity is wrong? Have you thought about that? I, I have thought about it. In fact, you know, it's interesting, again, context being king in these things. When Acts 2.38 is a good example. When people say he's, he's baptized in the name of Jesus, um, you look at the whole context in the Peter's, Peter's sermon, um, he, he, he gives a Trinitarian uh, argument. He says, this Jesus God raised up. Well, uh, th- how does that work if they're exactly the same in terms yeah, of their, yeah. their personhoods? Um, and then he says, th- being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, again, a subject of a distinction, having yeah. received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, right there, Trinity. Yeah. Talked yeah, about right yeah, there. Yeah. Um, and then in verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, subject-object distinction once again, yeah. uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Um, uh, and God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, and receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You keep going and you see all three are there. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anything magical yeah. about being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I think what's happening in Acts chapter 2 as an example, and in other places in the scripture, is, G, uh, is Peter is making a distinction uh, at Pentecost. And in other places, they're saying, this is the burgeoning church among the Jewish believers. The Messiah has come. They already believe in the Father. Mm-hmm. And they already believe in the Holy Spirit. What they need to believe now is in the name and the power of Jesus. Jesus Christ, yeah. So he's saying, be, be, be baptized in this name so that you know you are separate and separated, a peculiar people, so to speak, from everyone else. This is the name you reject. And so it's important for you to be baptized in this name only in an identification sense, not in a theological sense. He's not giving a theological dissertation on what it means to be baptized in Jesus' name. What he's saying is is that this is the distinction from everyone else who's rejecting him as Messiah. You're being baptized into this name, Jesus the Christ, specifically, Mm -hmm. um, so that you can say that I I believe Messiah has come. That's the, the, the significance there. But of course, then you go back to Jesus' words. Uh, if this was significant, if this meant something, if it meant you have to be baptized in Jesus' name only, then Jesus, of course, is wrong. Um, in Matthew 28, 19, when he says to go and, and baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Um, and if you're supposed to baptize them in Jesus' name only, then what is Jesus saying to people that baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Either, either you, you basically make Jesus into a into a, into a, a fool. You make him mistaken, and that simply cannot be the case. 
So again, reading two, all scriptures together, you see that there's no special significance um, between baptizing them in Jesus' name versus uh, in the name of the Father and yeah, the Son. It's not a magical formula that if you do one, you're right, and you do the other one, you're wrong. It, it, right. this, is, this is expressing a public, because baptism doesn't save you, it is a public declaration that I am taking on the name of Jesus, that I am part of the body of Jesus Christ. And right. In, yeah, and in fact, when people say, oh, be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins, people mis- misunderstand it to be that you're baptized so that you can have forgiveness of sins. What uh, Peter's really saying, uh, the best translation I think you would have, have of this is, be baptized every one of you because of the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. For you were forgiven of your sins. Yeah. That's what I would say it would be. So you're absolutely right, Rod. The other question that, that I get asked from time to time is whether a person is required to believe the doctrine of the Trinity to be a Christian. Mm. And, and I've looked at this. Roger Olson, who's a, a well-known theologian, uh, said this, the doctrine of the Trinity is not part of the gospel. It's not revealed truth. It is constructed out of revealed truth and constitutes necessary reflection on revealed truth in the light of heresies. So, you know, first there was truth, then there was error. Then that error became false doctrine, and orthodoxy, true doctrine, was required to be developed to withstand the false doctrine, subordinationism, adoptionism, modalism, tritheism. But once the doctrine of the Trinity was constructed and embraced by the church, it could not be and should not be set aside, ignored, or rejected, but neither should it be confused with the revelation itself or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and I think that with the, 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 the subtle distinction he's, he's making an effort to, to, to articulate, and it's always difficult, isn't it? Because if one said the Trinity is not revelation, then someone could say, well, the fact that the, 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 then, then everything you're interpreting in the Bible is just personal interpretation. It's not revel- it's not revealed. Yeah. Wouldn't God reveal something so important, obviously? And I would say this, I think he did yeah. um, reveal it pretty obviously. So in the one sense, I agree with that, that statement. In the other sense, I would say I'm cautious about it because I do think the Trinity is, re- is revealed in Scripture, but it doesn't say God. There's no, there's no scripture that says God is one in His persons and three in. Uh, sorry, one in His nature and three in His persons. Yeah, yeah. So that's I agree with that. If he's if he's saying that, I agree with that. You do have to intuit the scripture. Uh, sorry, the Trinity from the scripture that clearly teaches it. So that's what I would say. Um, now go back to your question, though. Do you, is it necessary for salvation? When you read Romans 10, um, Paul doesn't say believe in the Trinity and thou shalt be saved. Yeah. Um, but it, the Trinity is strongly implied, isn't it? Because when Paul says that um, <clears throat> we, we, we confess with our mouths that um, Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. Well, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God. And if God raised him from the dead, then God is God. And there's a, dif- there's a distinction uh, there. Um, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, and that Lord, that name, of course, is Yahweh. He's referring to in uh uh, Romans ten thirteen, mm-hmm. so um, it's simply the the death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus paid for your sins. Um, that's what gets you that salvation. Um, now, having said that, I mean, I, like I said, I didn't fully believe. I shouldn't say that. I accepted the Trinity on faith. I didn't fully understand the Trinity to the extent that I do now um, until after I was a believer. But I accepted it on faith. Now, what I what I mean by um, 
salvation based on the Trinity. It's always a sticky wicket, isn't it? Because yeah, you have to understand yeah. motivations. Yeah. If you were to say, I, I understand your arguments on the Trinity and I reject those arguments, I understand them and I reject them. Well, now you're rejecting who God is. Yeah. And I don't have enough um, authority to say you're still safe. I don't have authority to say you're going to hell either, but I don't have the authority to, and, and, or the reasoning to say your willful rejection of something you actually now know um, constitutes um, a, a passable offense. Yeah, being in safe um, territory. Right. Exactly. And, and, who, and, and, and if I was to be just blunt about it, my, my human reasoning would be you are running dangerously close, if not full bore outside yeah, yeah. of the gospel. Um, uh, by rejecting it. Now, if you don't know it or have a hard time understanding it and are like, well, I don't get it. I'm not going to accept it till I get it. I think there's a little bit difference there. It's yeah. a little bit different. Yeah. Um, yeah. I still think you're running on very, very dangerous ground. Um, and I won't, I don't judge people's motivations and hearts. I, I that's, that's why, thank goodness I don't. If it was <laughs> me to judge them, oh my goodness. Um, uh, either everyone would be in heaven or everyone would be in hell. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. But thank God, God does it. Um, but so I, like, I have a distinction. If you know it and then reject it, that's extremely different. Um, and dangerous. And some would say, well, if you reject it, you, you know, it's like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. No one will be forgiven uh, of that one sin, Jesus says. Yeah. Well, what does that mean exactly? And it might mean a denial of the Holy Spirit's divinity. Um, uh, that's very dangerous. Yeah. But if you sort of understand it, or you're not quite convinced yet, um, you know, I would say one, get your mind straight on this one, figure it out. Keep digging. Uh, keep digging. Uh, don't just say, oh, it's not a big deal, so I won't look into it. Uh, I don't want to give that impression either, because people often will say, well, if it doesn't matter for salvation, why does it matter at all? Well, I'll tell you why it matters. And this is another part of it that I absolutely love, Rod. And um, the Trinity makes sense of every other doctrine of Christianity, especially your salvation, especially your salvation. I, when I was a Muslim, I'd say, who was Jesus paying? When he dies on the cross, I mean, you're saying he's paying a price for our sins. If Jesus is God, he's just taking money from one pocket and putting it into another. Yeah, yeah. He's not paying anybody. He's just paying himself. It's a fiction. It's a lie. Um, so I just thought that was a silly idea. But when you see that God is one and that Jesus shares that nature, now he can be perfect, having no burdens of his own to bear, so he can bear ours. Uh -huh. If he had his own sins to pay for, how he can't pay for mine. Yeah. Uh, he's got his own to pay for, but he doesn't. He's perfect. Only one is perfect. That's God. So Jesus being perfect um, already displays God's characteristics, but he pays. The son pays an actual debt to a distinct personhood who is the father. And that payment is real, mm -hmm. not fake, not mm -hmm. fictitious. Mm -hmm. If they're the same, it's fictitious. If they're different in their personhoods, then it's actually real. Yeah. So the very doctrine of salvation, I think, only makes sense if God is a triune being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so someone says, well, why does it matter? That's why it matters, yeah. because it makes sense of your faith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you reject that willfully, Chances are you're actually rejecting the very rational basis for your faith in the first place. Yeah. But if you don't understand it and you're having a hard time, keep going. Um, and if you die in the sense of I want to understand who God is, uh, I'm not totally totally sold on this thing, but I'm not outright rejecting it either, that's up to God to judge, not me. Yeah.
exactly. So th- th- thanks, Abdul. I want to ask you one final question before we close, and I try to ask of everyone that comes on our podcast, what does it mean to you to be a true follower of Jesus Christ? Mm, um, probably the most important question you can ask a person. Honestly, I, I do think that A.W. Tozer said, when you think of God, whatever you th- it is you think of when you think of God says more about you than anything else. Uh-huh. Um, to be a true follower, you know, you take those two words that you just said, true and follower. Um, boy, that's so, that, that, those are sobering words. Uh, Jesus goes to the woman at the well, and she is so convinced that true worship depends on what ethnicity you come from, Samaritan or Jew, yeah. what well you go to, Jacob's well, which, which temple, the mount at, one in Mount Gerizim in Samaria or the one in Jerusalem, Geogra- geography, ethnicity, gender, all these things. And he says the Father is looking for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. That idea of true, a true follower of Christ, I think one embraces uh, truth no matter the price. That's what I think happens. Follow him no matter what it costs you. Um, And it'll cost you dearly. There are those who are listening to your podcast right now who are uh, either former modalists or current modalists. And I know how how this works um, from my background in Islam. When you question the authority of your church or your local assembly uh, or your elders or your parents and you say, no, I think God is three. I think God is three in one. He is three persons in one being. There is one God in three persons. There's consequences. To be a true follower yes. means you face it. You right. face up to it, and you say, I'll go with you no matter what. That's a very hard thing to do. Um, so a true follower, first is truth. You look for truth mm-hmm. because you can follow him, and when you're following him on a crumbled basis and the, word, the, the waves get pretty high, and that crumbles away, you walk away from him. But if you follow him in spirit and in truth, um, no matter what you face, whether it's family, friends, church, uh, the world that's trying to change us day by day, you can withstand those things. But Paul says we are to be conformed unto his image mm-hmm. and his suffering, mm-hmm. even to his death. Yeah. That's what a true follower of Jesus actually is. And the beauty of it is, is that when he says that um, the sheep hear my voice, I give them in John 10, 27, verse 30, uh, to, to, 20, to 30, when he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Mm-hmm. And they'll snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. Um, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That is what it means to be a follower. You bear the price yeah. because of the sake of the truth. Yeah. Because no, you have hope that he will keep you in his hand and none can snatch you from it. For me, in my darkest days, when things are toughest, uh, truth sustains me, the Father guides me, the Son has saved me, and the Spirit comforts me. Mm-hmm. That's what it means to be a true follower of Christ in my life. Amen. Amen. Abdu, thank you very much for uh, coming on and spending this time with us. It's, uh, I know I greatly appreciate it, and I know uh, the people that hear this are going to really appreciate it as well. So thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. Rod, it's been a true honor. Thank you so much for this and for all you're doing. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. You too. If you have a question or comment, please feel free to go to our website at offtheshelf.life. There is a comment section at the bottom of every episode's webpage. Or you are welcome to send an email to rod at offtheshelf.life. Have a great week and thanks for listening.
Jesus.